Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Welcome to ADA, ADA Live. So on behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to Episode 54 of ADA Live. Hello, everyone. I am Pam Williamson, Assistant Project Director of the Southeast ADA Center and your host for today's show. During today's episode of WADA ADA Live, we are discussing community living and policy as it relates to disability and aging. Older adults and individuals with disabilities share desires to live independently in the community and age with dignity and respect. Unfortunately, our current system of long-term services and supports, also known as LTSS, often forces individuals to become poor, it places enormous burdens on unpaid family caregivers, and is biased towards nursing homes and institutional services. Before we begin, though, let's, as a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about community living and policy at any time at adalive.org. It is my pleasure now to introduce today's guest from the National Council of Aging, NCOA, Joe Caldwell, Director of Long-Term Services and Support. The NCOA is a respected national leader and respected partner in helping people age 60 and above to meet challenges of aging. NCOA collaborates with nonprofit organizations, government, and business to provide innovative community programs and services, online help, and advocacy. Joe, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Joe, can you talk about the impact that the aging population in the United States will have on the needs for long-term services and supports? Uh, Yeah, it's going to be a significant impact. If you look right now, about 12 million people in the U.S. need some form of long-term services and supports. And right now that's pretty evenly split so that about half of those people are under age 65 and half are over age 65. But because of the aging baby boom generation, every day more and more people are are turning 65 and and more significantly um, people are living longer into their 80s and 90s. So what researchers project is that the number of people that need long-term services and supports is going to rise from 12 million today to 27 million by the year 2050. So, you know, in my lifetime, we're going to see um, the number of people that need long-term services and supports more than double. Um, And it's going to impact families significantly. Um, Some research indicates some recent research um, that was done indicated that about 70% of people that turn 65 today are going to need some level of long-term services and supports in their lifetime. So it's going to affect all of us, whether we um, 
you know, whether we, we develop a disability and need long-term services and supports, or if we're a family caregiver that's trying to help somebody stay in the community um, and be independent. So it's going to be a dramatic uh, increase, and I think it's going to affect, um, you know, the whole system of how we how we deliver um, long-term services and supports in the future for younger people and older people. Joe, those numbers are staggering. It really uh, kind of brings to home uh, the idea of um, folks who are aging and those of us such as myself that have become caregivers for older parents uh, in the in this realm and trying to keep them at home. So, and one of those things that really has um, impacted my life and, and and my parents' life is paying for these services. So, how do these older adults? pay for and access these long-term services and supports? Well, it's really difficult. Um, And, you know, it's pretty similar to younger people with disabilities as well. Um, You know, most people end up relying on unpaid family caregivers um, and to some extent Medicaid, which is really the only, you know, funding stream for long-term services and supports in the country right now. you know, most people that are probably tuning into the webinar or the, the podcast know that Medicare doesn't cover long-term services and supports. It may cover a little bit of nursing home care after you've been in a nursing home or been in a hospital and, and you need to, to recover a little bit. But after 100 days, you know, it doesn't pay for long-term care. But the general public, they a survey after survey, they they show that people think Medicare will cover long-term care, but but it really doesn't. And I think that's something we need to to educate people about. Um, so really, um, the other options are uh, private long-term care insurance. That's been a, around for for decades, and there are some people that have bought private long-term care insurance policies, but it's very very small. Um, only about uh, 5% of people have long-term care insurance. And if you look at older people, it's about uh, 11% of people over 65 have purchased uh, private long-term care insurance. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The market right now is, is not a very favorable market. Um, it's become very expensive. So most middle-class families really can't afford uh, to buy private long-term care insurance. And even if you can't afford it, they've gotten stricter on the underwriting criteria. So that excludes a lot of people, you know, with disabilities from buying uh, long-term care insurance. Or really, it's not just even disability. It's, you know, if you have any kind of health condition or if you're too old, uh, if you wait too long, you can't, you can't even buy private long-term care insurance. Um, so what does that leave people pretty much on their own to, to pay for this, um, either, either privately out of pocket, which a lot of families do. Um, they may hire personal attendants out of pocket. Um, they may uh, try to get some respite uh, or a day program um, and pay for that out of pocket. But, you know, it reaches a point where you can't do that. Um, that's not sustainable. And so people turn to Medicaid at that point. And, you know, Medicaid 
for better or worse, is, is the primary uh, funding stream for long-term services and supports in the country. Um, and, you know, it forces people to become poor. So to get Medicaid, people have to spend down um, all their, you know, assets and, you know, whatever they might have in savings that they've saved their whole life to have. Um, they have to spend that down to, you know, only about $2,000 to to be able to qualify for Medicaid. And then, you know, the disability community knows this, this all too well is even if you can get Medicaid and get on it, that doesn't mean you're going to get home and community-based services because there's an institutional bias within the program um, that, you can get nursing home care, but if you want to stay at home um, in your in your community, um, which is what older people do want to do, um, you know, it's not easy to get those services. And uh, waiting lists have, have also really increased over the last couple decades. So there's a lot of seniors and people with disabilities that are waiting for for those services. So it's not an easy it's not an easy picture for younger people or older people with disabilities and, and trying to patch together, you know, the supports that they need. So we're looking at this and there's, and as you were talking about, there's the bias of towards nursing homes and other types of institutional care. Are there states that have, rebalance or refocus and, and trying to move more towards uh, cost-effective home and community-based services? Yeah, we've actually made a lot of progress over the past uh, two or three decades. I thought it would be interesting for your audience to kind of pull a couple dates. Um, so if you look at 1990, so that was passage of the ADA, um, and you look at Medicaid spending, uh, so we, as a country, we were, we were only spending 12% of the total Medicaid funding for long-term services and supports on community-based services. So only 12% was going to community-based services. You look at 1999, the passage of the, the, uh, the Olmstead decision, um, so by that point, we were up to 25% was going to community. And now, as of uh, the most recent data, we're up to 55%. So the majority of money is actually going on to home and community-based services. So, you know, just in the last couple of decades, that's been truly remarkable how that's shifted. And it's happened because of the, the ADA, because of the Olmstead decision and enforcement. Um, and also been some key pieces of legislation like um, the Community First Choice option, the Money Follows a Person program, uh, another program called the Balancing Incentive Program. And that's really helped a lot of states make progress um, to expand access to, to home community-based services. So that's the good news, but the bad news is we still have a long, long ways to go. There's a lot of variation between states. So if you're lucky enough to be in a state um, that's made a lot of progress, you might have access to home and community-based services, but in a lot of other states, they're, they're very far behind. And it also has varied a lot by population. So for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, 
um, as a nation, now we spend 76% of the funding in the community. In some states, for people with developmental disabilities, spend all their money on community-based services. They don't have institutions anymore. Um, but when you look at older people and people with physical disabilities and people with mental health disabilities, the progress has not been as uh, dramatic. And actually, if you just look at older people uh, and people with physical disabilities, there's still seven states that spend less than 20% of their money on the community. And I think that's just, you know, uh, deplorable that, you know, they're still spending less than fifth of their money on the community um, and 80% on, on nursing homes. So, you know, like I said, we got a lot more progress to go, but we've made some good progress over the last couple decades. Well, I am encouraged by the progress that's been made, uh, and I was recently at a meeting regarding Olmstead implementation uh, in Georgia, and I'm hearing the same thing that uh, you mentioned here with the varied uh, spending on long-term communities for supports and services from state to state, as well as uh, people who are aging uh, versus people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So uh, hopefully we will continue to see forward progress. So ADA Live listening audience, if you have any questions about community living and policy or any other ADA Live topic, please submit your questions at any time at our online forum at adalive.org. I want to pause for a minute now for a word from our sponsor, the National Council on Aging. The National Council on Aging works to improve the health and economic security of older adults. NCOA is the represented, respected national leader and trusted partner to help people age 60 and over to meet the challenges of aging. National Council on Aging partners with nonprofit organizations, government, and business to provide innovative community programs and services, online health, and advocacy. Their goal is to improve the health and economic security of 10 million older adults by the year 2020. The vision of NCOA is to build a just and caring society in which each of us, as we age, live with dignity, purpose, and security. To learn more, visit their website at www.ncoa.org. Hi, folks. Welcome back to our show. We're talking with Joe Caldwell of the National Council on Aging about community living and policy in relation to aging and disability. Joe, NCOA does a lot of work promoting evidence-based healthy aging and fall prevention programs. Can you tell us a little bit more about these programs and the importance to promoting community living? Uh, yeah, these programs are really, you know, part of the whole um, picture of, of helping people keep maintain their independence and being independent and um, preventing people from, you know, going into nursing homes and institutions. And so these are, are two big areas that we kind of focus. Um, let's take falls first. You know, falls is a huge issue for for older people. Actually, a fourth of Americans 
over age 65 fall each year. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Every 11 seconds, an older adult is treated in the emergency room for a fall, and every 19 minutes, uh, an older adult dies from a fall. Um, they, you know, falls are really the leading cause of people uh, going in to nursing homes and uh, really losing their the independence that they that they have. So the good the good thing about it is falls are not a normal part of aging. They're totally preventable. I mean, we can do things to to prevent people from falling and, and injuring themselves and uh, losing their their independence. Um, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, there's environmental assessments where people can come into the home and look for uh, risks of uh, you know within the, the the home of barriers and risks that that cause falls. You know, there's a lot of adaptive equipment out there. There's home modifications and grab bars and all this stuff, you know, can prevent people from falling. At NCOA, we do a lot of what's called evidence-based uh, intervention programs. And what these do are programs that really help seniors kind of take charge of, of their lives and uh, build up their strength and their balance and um, reducing the fear of falling, which actually causes people to fall. So these are proven um, interventions and strategies where people kind of meet in groups, and uh, they do Tai Chi, for example, is one, one intervention. But there's a whole host of them, and they've been proven to work. They actually can reduce, uh, reduce the, the incidence of falls. And so we help uh, community-based organizations uh, that want to deliver these programs, um, sort of TA, we provide TA and help them to, to implement these programs. We also um, just try to wear, raise awareness about falls and falls prevention. There's um, what's called falls-free coalitions that, um, that 42 states have formed now, and we do um, every year on the first day of fall, we do a falls awareness um, campaign to just try to, you know, help help seniors and caregivers be more aware of of falls and how to prevent them. So that's one area where we do a lot of work. And the other area that you mentioned is um, management of chronic conditions. So chronic conditions are things like, you know, diabetes and arthritis and hypertension or, or, um, or heart disease. And the thing about this is if people manage those, um, you know, they can prevent secondary conditions or they can prevent those conditions from worsening and people requiring really secondary disabilities. Um, and, again, there's good news because there's a lot of evidence that shows that if people are empowered to kind of take more control of their health and know how to do that, that, um, that you can prevent uh, conditions from worsening. You can um, help people stay independent in, in the community. Um, and it's a big issue for, for older people. You know, about 80% of older adults have at least one type of chronic uh, condition, and about two-thirds have at least two different uh, chronic conditions. Um, you know, one of the, one of the most uh, Evidence-based programs is a program called the Chronic Disease Self-Management Program. 
so it's got a long name, but it's um, it was a program that was developed by Stanford University, and it's available in the community where people go and um, take this uh, in groups. And um, it's also there's uh, versions that are available online if people um, can't make it to um, an actual uh, community event. So that's one particular program that we uh, we promote and um, help community-based organizations to deliver. And I also wanted to just add on both of these issues, you know, falls prevention and managing chronic conditions. These these aren't just issues for older adults. They're also really important for for younger adults, there's a lot of research that shows that younger adults with disabilities um, have risks for falls and, of course, uh, high rates of chronic conditions that they need to manage as well. So we've been trying to figure out um, what, what we can do to help include people with disabilities more, younger, younger people um, with disabilities. And we've been, um, for example, working with uh, Ivan Moulton at the University of Washington, and he leads um, a center on healthy aging that's funded by um, by uh, NIDLER, the National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. So we've been working with him and hope to keep working with him about adapting some of these programs so that they better serve um, the younger people with disabilities as well. Joe, this is all very interesting and helpful information and I'm really excited to learn about the uh, target both on older adults and younger adults and I will say I've actually used some of your materials personally because when my father's health started declining several months ago we were able to use some of the information in my parents home to move some of those things out of the way that might uh, impact his ability to move around and to help with the falls and just teaching him how to fall. So we did that in, co in collaboration with his doctor and home health, and it has been um, a wonderful resource. So I thank you personally, and I know our listeners will uh, will also benefit from the information. No. Well, you've got so many great things going on. I want to talk more about the uh, collaboration between National Aging and Disability Organization because we know it takes people working together in order to be able to advance community living policy. Can you talk more about these and tell us why it's important? Yeah. Um, so I actually, most of my background was actually in the disability community um, as far as my education and, and personal experience. Um, and one of the reasons I came to NCOA is because they really um, are open to working with anybody. And there was this opportunity to kind of bring together aging and disability groups. And I would say it was really one of the first efforts at the national level to really do this successfully. Um, and it goes back to 2009. And just to put that into perspective, that was, you know, before the Administration for Community Living was formed. Um, at that time, the, the ADA centers were over in Department of Ed. Um, they weren't in ACL. Um, so that's going back a while. And um, the reason that the groups came finally came together <laughs> was that 
we were trying really hard to get long-term services and supports included in health reform. And we knew that there was this big health reform being starting to be talked about, and um, they were starting to form different proposals. None of those proposals included anything on long-term services and supports. Um, it was all about medical care, acute care. And the aging disability communities realized that, you know, if we don't come together and work together on this, we're never going to get long-term uh long-term services supports included as part of health reform. So that's what brought us together was sort of that, that common, common ground. And so we formed this little coalition. At that time, it was called the Friday Morning Collaborative because we met on Friday mornings. <laughs> and uh, it was a very small group. It was about um, originally about maybe 15 groups. It included the major groups like Nickel you know, the National Council on Independent Living included the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, uh, NCOA, AARP, um, so some of the, the major groups. And, you know, I'll say the first meetings we had were really kind of tense because, you know, people, and I know people listening, if you've ever tried to work in coalition or bring together aging disability groups, you know, there was a lot of, like, myths and stereotypes and uh, uncertainty about if we should work together. Um, but we worked through that. And the good thing is we were really successful. We actually got a lot of stuff in the uh, the health care, the, the Affordable Care Act, on long-term services and supports. Um, we got this program called the Community Living Assistance Services and Supports Act, the CLASS Act, which unfortunately was repealed, but that actually led to the formation of of ACL, the Administration for Community Living. That's kind of where they got the, the name Community Living, um, because they needed a place to put this program while they were working on it. Um, and then we got a lot of good stuff on Medicaid, like the Community First Choice Option, the Balancing Incentive Program. We got some protections for spouses um, so that they don't have to become poor when somebody goes on Medicaid to get community-based services. So we were really successful And should we keep meeting together, and everybody wanted to keep meeting. So over the last really eight years, this coalition has continued. Uh, we changed our name. We're now called the Disability and Aging Collaborative. It's still, it's national groups, but now there's about 40 national groups. And we meet twice a month <laughs> for the past eight years. And we work together on strategy. We share information. You know, we try to really have a more powerful voice on long-term services supports. And we've continued to make progress and, um, you know, in terms of implementing things and, weighing in on regulations at the federal level and, you know, working on the next uh, versions of, uh, of legislation at the, at the national level. So it's been, it's been an amazing uh, experience. And it really, uh, the thing I would really stress to people listening is, you know, if you're, it's not easy, but if you're able to bring together these groups, you really, really can have a much more powerful voice for, for change. Joe, that that is 
amazing. It really reminds me of my favorite quote by Helen Keller, which is, alone we can do so little, and together we can do so much. I actually have that quote um, on my wall in my office to remind me of that. And that the story you just told about the collaborative really highlights that because you've made some great strides, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. Just a quick follow-up question on that is if people want to learn more about what the collaborative is doing, do you have a way for them to – uh, be able to find out more about the collaborative's work, uh, or is this? We do. If you go to our, our website, ntoa.org, there's a, some additional information there that lists um, the organizations that are involved in the collaborative. And one thing we started to do over the years is um, is webinars uh, so that we can reach the state advocates because in order to be successful, you got the national advocates and the state advocates also have to work work together um, on issues. So we we started this webinar series um, as a way to kind of to do that um, and make a connection there. So all those webinars are up on the website. And I also want to give a plug that um, a Nidler, Nidler, uh funded um, center really has helped uh, tremendously with those webinars. The Community Living Policy Center that's at um, University of San Francisco uh, or University of California at San Francisco, they've provided support for us to be able to do that. Excellent, excellent. Well, Joe, we're about out of time today, so I'd like to uh, have you give a quick statement here about what you see as the biggest pressing policy issue and maybe one of the biggest challenges that you see for the next few years for older adults. Yeah, well, I'll start with something we're working on right now that I think is very doable and um, our collaborative is working on on trying to get this to happen this year, Um, and that is extending the Money Follows the Person program that um, has been a really successful program. It has tremendous bipartisan support, um, and it helps people, you know, transition from nursing homes back to the community, as well as helping the states to make more progress on rebalancing. So we got a lot of support for that, and we're trying to get that over the finish line this year. But I would say big picture, um, and this is a little bit of a teaser for uh, Leslie Freed, who's going to be on a future podcast, but I think the, the issue of economic security for, uh, for older adults is a huge issue for this country as we, we go forward, um, and that's tied to, to long-term services and supports. But, you know, most seniors in this country um, are, are really struggling to get by. They live on very low income. About a 25% of seniors actually live on uh, less than $30,000 a year, and that's barely enough to, to pay, you know, the bills and, and just food and so forth. And, you know, what happens, like, like we talked about, you develop a need for long-term services and supports, and that, that just wipes you out completely. Um, so that's an issue we got to address. We got to figure out a better way to pay for long-term services supports in the community that doesn't require people to to become poor and give up everything they have. So, 
you know, that to me is the the big issue that we got to work on in the in the in the future. Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And listeners, just as a reminder, uh, this has been Joe Caldwell um, from the National Council on Aging. And this episode and all previous ADA episodes are available on our website at www.adalive.org. They are archived in a variety of formats, including streaming audio from our website, accessible transcripts of the audio, and they are also available to download as podcasts to listen to at your convenience. I also want to thank our ADA Live listening audience for tuning in today. We're thankful for your support and listening in the series for this ADA Live broadcast. And as a reminder, you can submit any questions on these topics or any other by going to adalive.org. Please join us for our next episode on April 4th. We will be talking with Steve about his new book, Have Dog Will Travel. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, contact your ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, all calls are free and confidential. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.